ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is It is Wednesday, and that means one thing, another edition of the Dome Patrol on Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And joining me, as always, is my man, my friend, my compatriot, my brother, Mr. Ross Jackson. Ross, how you doing this week? Hey, brother. Glad to be here with you, man. I'm doing well. How are you holding up? Doing well. You know, my daughter's birthday is coming up this weekend. She'll be 13. All right. Happy and, birthday. Uh, yeah, so we've gotten confirmations from all the friends for her pool partying and... Uh, you know, things is getting set up and things are arriving. So we're on schedule for that. And, you know, it's a, it's a big thing. She's, yeah. she's becoming 13. It's 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 big. Wow. So, yeah. She's officially into teens now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a big jump. Like I have to go through now. Like I had Google. I have parental controls on her phone and everything with the Google. But when she uh-huh. turns 13, I lose the right to do certain uh-huh. things because now uh-huh. her account becomes hers. Right. So we've had to have the conversation about what things I'm still going to control. I don't want her, you know, you don't sure. want to take your kid's privacy. And I, I want her to be able to have a space, but I also need to have some oversight. Yeah, you know? yeah, for sure. But for it's, sure. It, it's exciting to, to see her continue to grow up and just be this amazing person compared to the, yeah, man. like, I hate to be on a parent rant, but like that first time you hold your kid. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea who they are. You know what I mean? All you right. know is that you love this person unconditionally and forever. That's the only thing you can think of in that moment. You have no idea who or who they're going to take after, what they're going to be. And just to see where she is now just makes me so more excited for what she's going to be in the future. I love it. I love it. That's my homie. That's number one. That's the number yeah, one. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Well, to get into what the folks come for with football... The big announcement by the NFL today about the salary cap. Yeah. And so we get a salary cap for 2022 that will not exceed $208.2 million. Um, this 2021 salary cap was higher than expected at 182.5. Let's let's talk about two things and how this impacts the Saints. Number one, the amount mm-hmm. of money that the Saints already have committed for next year, mm-hmm. which is a close to $200 million. Yeah, it's it is actually exactly two hundred and eight million dollars now. <laughs> it is exactly where the NFL set the ceiling. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> but this is again not new territory, right? Yeah, this isn't this isn't foreign to them at all. The thing that makes it so tricky is that. The salary cap is set to two hundred and eight point two million dollars. They already have two hundred and eight million dollars uh, committed to that to, to, to that season, uh, and that's about thirty, maybe about thirty-two players uh, that are on contract for that season right now. So that becomes a tricky part, right? So you you're going to expect more restructures, uh, probably some more cuts, things like that. But you're going to see a lot of folks. You know, a lot of what you saw this season, right? Restructures, pay cuts, uh, redoing deals, signs, you know, signing people and keeping the first year low and pushing money back, all of this up, and expecting to kick the can down the road a little bit more, especially with the salary cap expected to rise uh, beyond this season, getting into 2023, 2024. It's good news in that it's not staying flat to the 198 it was last year or the 182 it is this year. So that's still good news for them. They're not 
over the salary cap with their 30 to 35 players. They're just right there at the salary cap with those 30 to 35 players. But they'll be able to knock some of that down because it's not as if you know all 32 of those players have an equal share of the $208 million. It's just a few top-heavy contracts that can be restructured for next season. And then um, also looking at that for the cap, has that impacted, do you think, the way the Saints have approached free agency this offseason in thinking about what that number was going to be before it was announced? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And yes, I think it does. I think it makes them a little bit more um, lenient in terms of what they might look to spend here moving forward. So some of these other veterans, and this goes for teams across the NFL, honestly, these other veterans that are out there that are still quality players, the the Geno Atkins, uh, Richard Sherman, uh, Melvin Ingram, like those players that are still out on the market right now that have value and have the potential to immediately impact the team, they become a little bit more signable now to in, to a deal more than just one year in length. You know, you can do a two-year deal and spread out the contract a little bit. You can do a three-year deal and spread out the contract a little bit, knowing that the salary cap, as of right now at least, is not expected to be as low as it has been over the last two seasons. Now, there's no there's no floor on the on the salary cap, but there is a ceiling, and any money that ends up being made above that goes to playing off, to, excuse me, to paying off uh, any player incentives or player agreements that weren't uh, utilized during the 2020 2021 seasons coming up here, which was expected not to be paid back until after 2023, but now could potentially be paid back a year early. So it, it looking at this offseason then, because the Saints have delayed this move, we've seen a lot of comments from fans and mm. from some, some other writers who have said that this has been a disappointing offseason. And you and I have talked a lot about just the Saints. This is what they do. They're very patient. But do you see the causes and the reasons for those folks who are disappointed with the pace of signings and with the actions that the uh, front office has taken? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, you you have to look at the 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 first piece of this is that the Saints are always a team that's focused in house before they're focused on adding pieces. Um, you know, with the exception of the draft, the Saints don't really go out there and look to add a ton of pieces to have to you know teach this offense or teach this defense and have to get them up to speed and everything. They make really strategic signings, and most of the time when you think about the best free agency signings that the Saints have had of late, they were bargain bin deals. They were not these big day one splash or early free agent splash deals. You think about the Demario Davis signing, you think about the Malcolm Brown signing, these players, you know, even Larry Warford, who was brought in uh, a little bit late, and although it, the, the tenure didn't end well, it was still Pro Bowl seasons every year that he was with the New Orleans Saints. I mean, he still brought something to this team. So, you know, you look at those signings and even some of the the impact players from a role perspective, like a role player perspective, like a Manti Teo, for instance, all those signings came late in the in the free agency process or relatively late in terms of the big day one, day two, or even before, right, when players are agreeing to contracts before they're technically allowed to even sign them type of period. And so that's the first thing I look at. The second thing I look at is that you'll notice that no one else is signing these players either. So, you know, every player that you want that's on the market is 
still on the market and that's why you want them and you can notice that it's not just the new orleans saints that aren't making those moves it's other teams now they could have been waiting to find out news like this they could be waiting to figure out what's going to be the situation they just made the new announcement for roster cuts as well and what Mm -hmm. that process is going to be how many people are allowed to be inside of facilities at one time all those things were still question marks up until the meeting that took place on wednesday to where some of those things got clarified so this could be the point now to where everyone was sort of waiting for this threshold and this information to make more educated decisions of what they might do in free agency later on down the line. We talked. You talked about the roster cut uh, changes, and it is interesting because the NFL added some time between mm-hmm. the final cuts and the start of the regular season to allow players a little bit more time to find rosters and for, for teams to look a little bit longer. But mm-hmm. those first sets of cuts, August 17th from 90 to 85, August 24th from 85 to 80, and then August 31st from 80 to 53. Mm-hmm. The Saints navigated those cuts very well last year. Yeah. Holding absolutely. on to the last moment in most cases to decide to let people go. How do you think that this new calendar impacts them? Yeah, I mean, I think that having the sort of first five and second five obviously might rush their process a little bit. I know I, I know that the Saints have actually enjoyed not having to cut down from 90 to 53 until after the final preseason game, which has been the last couple of years with the COVID year an exception. But for the New Orleans Saints, I think that their intent it has always been to wait until the very last moment to make those types of decisions. I mean, making a decision after the first preseason game, another one after the second preseason game, that becomes a little bit tough. You know, does it do you end up releasing players that you haven't seen yet at that point in terms of who's available to play in the preseason? Uh, you know, do you end up making decisions based upon who based upon the actual performances that you do get to see on the field? It'll be a little bit it'll be pretty interesting to see how they manage that, right? Like are the first five cuts people that saw the field or not? Are the second five cuts people that saw the field or not? So that'll be very interesting to see. But I do like the idea of giving players a little bit more time to be able to go out there and find new potential contracts and doing so in a, in a, in a situation where they could potentially sign and be back on the field the very next week if they don't make it after the first set of cuts. I think that's a good model for the players, and it is a little bit more player-focused. And for the teams, maybe it's a little bit more comfortable because you're only at max cutting 10 players before you have to make the full final decision. And I think it could be affected by injuries during the preseason. Sure. And with those first sets of cuts, and that could have a dramatic impact if you have to hold some people out a little bit longer. Who do you release strategically, and can you get Mm -hmm. those players back when the guys you want to have healthy are available? And then you talk about those guys who did opt out of last season due to Mm -hmm. COVID, and they come back into camp. Their evaluation process is going to be a lot different as well to see where they are physically, to see where they are. You know, guys who are under contract who aren't going anywhere but have to reintegrate themselves into the lineup. It's going to be interesting to see how these cuts get managed, particularly those first two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm very interested to see how that process plays out and what becomes the decision-making factor for those early cuts. Does there become a strategy that has to take place with that longer amount of time? If you're Sean Payton and you have somebody that you really would like to see on your practice squad, but you're letting them go now with more time than they had before. How do you, you know, what is the impact then for, for Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton to try to identify not only the guys that they want to keep internally, but to also be prepared to see those guys get snatched up from other teams very quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I hate to say it this way, but I think that the earliest versions of cuts are going to be players that the team simply just either doesn't feel like they have a vision for or doesn't feel like they have a fit with. I mean, I, I think that that's really what it's going to have to be because I think those those players that you believe could be on your practice squad, you're going to take the lesser route of risk there, which is to keep them on your team, uh, potentially still showcase them during the preseason, which could still cause some trouble and players getting swept up by practice squads during that time is, is a real thing. But if you are intent upon keeping a player around and you want them to be on your practice squad, you're probably holding them until that 53-man roster cut. Let's transition over to um, some defensive rankings that came out and CBS went mm-hmm. through its top 10 the Saints ended up ninth in their rankings ahead of the Colts. I'm, if I'm the Saints, if that's what my rank is going into this with all the question marks that still exist on the defensive line that existed with the corners uh, situation, and even at the opposite starting linebacker position, like you said, mm-hmm. filling holes on all three levels. If this team can maintain a top 10 defense and you figure they'll still be in the top half of the league offensively just by Sean Payton doing whatever, that's a, a good evaluation then to think that the peers in this league still feel the Saints have that ability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big win for, for New Orleans in terms of their public perception of their defense. I mean, you know, this is you, know, you look at a lot of other teams around there who lost a starting corner, lost three of their top six snap getters on the defensive line and lost a starting linebacker, technically two starting linebackers, uh, just that the Saints happen to play nickel. That's a tough that's 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 a pretty big hit for a team. And that would usually drop them down, especially while you also have a number one corner that's facing potential suspension or whatever may happen due to the offseason arrest. Now, I'm sure they probably didn't factor that last part in there because there's no real identifier or understanding or precedent in terms of what's going to happen in that situation. But for the Saints, I mean, to be ranked within the top 10 with their defense, with losing as many players as they did on that defensive side, I think you have to be pretty happy about where you are there. Um, and it goes to show too, that this is a league that has a lot of confidence in what the saints did in their, in their draft and what they've done over the course of the off season so far. And it has to also speak to the stock um, of the coaching staff of this mm-hmm. team as well, to be able to maintain that, that folks feel that they'll be able to not only maintain what they do have, but coach up a lot of second and third year players who are now going to have to step into bigger roles. Yeah, especially when you look at, you know, losing a guy like Aaron Glenn to the Detroit Lions. He went over there to join Dan Campbell as your defensive coordinator. But then you replace him with a guy like Chris Richard, who has, you know, an impeccable reputation as a defensive backs coach. I think that, you know, that's something that we're, I mean, we're talking about, but that doesn't often get talked about when it comes down to, you know, you've had these major changes at major spots, particularly in the secondary and losing Janoris Jenkins. And, but you still have a very talented secondary with guys like, I mean, obviously uh, Malcolm Jenkins, but then you also got Marcus Williams, Marshawn Lattimore, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. Like you still have these really, really fantastic players. The added piece to that that's not getting a ton of talk nationally is that coaching staff and replenishing the Aaron Glenn spot with Chris Richard, who's again, has a really, really good reputation and has done some incredible work in the NFL before looking back to the Seattle Seahawks. And then you add on top of that guys like Ryan Nielsen, who the saints worked so hard to maintain over the course of the off season, they promoted him up to assistant head coach, gave him a little bit of a, a bump there. He was in the, the war room for the saints during the draft. I mean, he's a pivotal part as a decision-making entity beyond just being a defensive line coach. And then you have Dennis Allen, of course, who's a rising star within the defensive coordinators across 
the NFL, even though he has struggled a little bit throughout his career. It seems that he's really found his footing since 2017 with the personnel that they built here in New Orleans. I think that all of that, you know, it, it has to be a part of the evaluation when you look at what the Saints defense can be next year, even though they have some young, unproven talent there on the on the actual personnel side. And Dennis Allen has shown a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. in the way that he calls a game. Uh, the Saints don't really have one particular style. They emphasize stopping the run, certainly. But they have they have changed that defense to where you don't really know. They will adapt from opponent to opponent. And I think that that's yep. something, too, that, that teams around the league and, and people around the league respect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dennis Allen's ability to make adjustments after the first drive, after the first defensive drive, has always been something that, you know, Saints fans have equally uh, loved and hated, right? Because you have to sit there and watch them get their back put up against the wall during the, uh, or or watch them get backed up against the wall when, you know, the opening drive as they're sort of, you know, bending, not breaking, and whatever that focus may be. But then the adjustments they have the ability to make on the fly following that, and particularly halftime adjustments as well, which they were really good at in 2020 in particular, uh, those are things that speak really highly of Dennis Allen's mind, his scheme, and the way that his team around him, like the player personnel, actually ends up following and executing what it is that the vision Dennis Allen has. Are the Saints um, preparing to add to that defensive tackle rotation? You keep hearing that that's something that they want to do. Are there names that are floating about right now? It's tough. I mean, there's not really a lot of names that are being being tossed around in terms of potential signings for the New Orleans Saints. I mean, Richard Sherman is probably the last player that you've heard really be connected to New Orleans outside of TJ Carey, who ended up signing elsewhere. And then you've seen maybe the, um, you know, the tryout players that showed up for rookie minicamp. So the Saints have been playing it very close to the best so far throughout all of this. And, you know, they brought in Lorenzo Neal, son of Lorenzo Neal Sr., who was drafted by the New Orleans Saints. They bring in the defensive tackle out of Purdue, his son, as a uh, as an undrafted free agent here. And he will play along the interior defensive line. He'll be somebody that can challenge there. But I also think that the Saints have done a really good job at making sure that they have the versatile pieces that they need to where even if they don't end up addressing defensive tackle in a traditional sense, that Tano Passanio, um, Cam Jordan, Marcus Davenport, Peyton Turner, all of them have the versatility to play on the inside as well as on the outside. And so I could see them being perfectly comfortable walking in with what they have and starting Shy Tuttle, Malcolm Roach, or some rotation of the two next to David Onyemata, who's quickly ascending as one of the best defensive tackles in the NFL. I think that they'd be pretty comfortable with that if that's the situation they have to walk into. So again, I, th- I think that just like we were talking about earlier in terms of why the Saints haven't made many moves so far, what the reasons for that are, they're pretty comfortable with what they have in the building, and that's where their focus right now in terms of developing what they have there to make sure that they have the appropriate personnel ready to go for the 2021 season. Adding somebody in this late has its pros, has its cons, but I think right now what this team is focused on is who's in the building. And if you can keep that rotation to seven, if you can find seven guys who can can move in and out, it to me, being a lighter defensive line is not something that necessarily is a problem in this league right now. Uh, because there are so many teams that do run side to side rather than attacking up the Mm -hmm. middle. And the Saints have shown that pursuit has not been a problem at the linebacker spot. And it's certainly uh, you have defensive ends who have been committed to stopping the run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you look at the defensive ends in New Orleans, oftentimes be classified more so as edge defenders than edge rushers. And it's because of their ability to play the run. And you can say the same thing about the secondary as well. I mean, you know, this is a secondary that has always been very active in run support, even if it's not actually making a play or making 
making a tackle themselves, but being cognizant and understanding how to set an edge or being cognizant and understanding of how to hold contain uh, out on that side, how to beat a block with a wide receiver. That's why they always go with these physical, larger, imposing bodies at, at, in the secondary because of their ability to be able to play in the run game as well. And I think that that would be something that, you know, you look at a rookie like Paulson at Debo, 25 missed tackles over his tackling attempts in Stanford, his two years there. It's about 16% about where he was. So it's a little hefty, but I think that's something that they would definitely work on in terms of him hitting the field as soon as possible. He would have to improve there. That would be something that they would definitely put a focus on during the offseason. Let's look at those other rookies. Um, you had some projections on Canal Street Chronicles this week about um, some bold projections. Mm-hmm. And you you really stepped out with Peyton Turner projecting yeah. 13 and a half sacks for him as a rookie. Is is that hyperbole and 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 or or do you see something in him that would allow that kind of performance to, to take place? He definitely has the tools, you know what I mean? Like he's got the, he has more tools at his disposal than Trey Hendrickson did. I mean, you know, no no offense to Trey Hendrickson, but Trey Hendrickson benefited from the players around him quite a bit and Peyton Turner has natural ability that goes beyond what Trey Hendrickson had, hence why he was a first round pick as opposed to Trey Hendrickson who was a comfortable third round pick. I think you look at Peyton Turner as somebody that has the ability to string together pass rushing moves that does the things that New Orleans Saints really like. Their their style is not finesse pass rushing. Their style is speed to power conversion. Jeff Ireland said it in an interview with Jeff Duncan over at The Athletic when he said, we want defensive linemen that can push offensive linemen into the lapse of a quarterback. And you've seen Cam Jordan do that several times, uh, setting an example there. So, you know, you look at what it is that Peyton Turner brings and what he's bringing to the NFL. He has a better pass rushing set, pass rushing move set than, or let me say a more expansive pass rushing move set than what Marcus Davenport brought. He has some body control things just like Marcus Davenport that he'll need to work on like we always talk about when you're athletic at that size that tends to be one of the first things that they're going to work with uh, work on you with when you get to the NFL and he certainly has the ability to be able to 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 convert speed to power and be able to benefit off of that is he going to have 13 and a half sacks and was I mostly just comparing him to Trey Hendrickson yeah I mean that's mo- it, was, it was more so the latter than the former but you know I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up surprising people in a rotation with Marcus Davenport and coming out with more sacks than expected and maybe even more sacks and the starting defensive ends that are going to be there. That's interesting. Let's go to the offensive side with wide receiver Kawan Baker, who a lot of people are, are getting more and more aware of. Um, a guy with good size, great athleticism, uh, very solid speed in the 4-4 range. Could he be a strong candidate for that number two receiver spot? It'll be really interesting. Look, he played uh, 78% of his snaps from the slot in uh throughout his time in college at, at south alabama how much of that is his capability versus how much of that is the scheme sort of like what we talked about with justin jefferson making his transition to the nfl not that i expect kwan oh, excuse me not that i expect kwan uh to make that type of a leap of course you know to be a number one wide receiver the way that justin jefferson proved to be in minnesota but if you have an open position whether it be at wide receiver two on the outside at the z receiver role or the you know the uh the slot role either one he should be able to challenge for. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him get snaps early. I won't be surprised to see him make the 53-man roster. Uh, it's just really gonna it's really gonna come down to how much of an Im- or how much of an impact he can have and how quickly he can have it will come down to can he produce from the outside if he proves that he can do that he could potentially keep Traquan Smith in the slot role and keep Marquez Callaway as a key rotational player that continues to contribute over in the offense side while the Saints go with the guy that they you know invested a draft pick in for the first time since 2018. 
and he does have return skills, which you mm -hmm. expect Deontay Harris to do that job predominantly, but at least in the preseason, you're going to get him a few snaps out there to see what he can do. And yeah. he has on film, he has some of that running back type ability in the open Absolutely. field. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a guy that you get the ball in his hands and then you just kind of let him do what you let him create. I mean, he's akin to Kadarius Tony in that way. He just played for a smaller school and against lesser competition. So can he translate it to the NFL? That would be the big question. But he has the size. He has the speed. He has the tool set that's there in terms of the traits. Now, can he you know physically transition all of that to NFL speed? That will be the part that will be most interesting. And of course, playing against NFL schemes and fitting into an NFL offensive scheme. But I mean, you know, 16 receiving touchdowns in his career 11 rushing touchdowns he has versatility that i think is really interesting for new orleans even if he ends up playing a role like you know ty montgomery who came in to make some you know spot um some spot plays here and there then that would still be something that could benefit him and help him develop but uh you know if i'm gonna make a bold prediction about him my bold prediction was gonna be though that he he ends up winning that wide receiver two spot sooner rather than later and then out you know out playing in terms of receiving yards the other receivers that are around him outside of of course michael thomas he could find himself as a, maybe a poor man's Percy Harvin, something like that, mm -hmm. out, out of the gate, which would be yeah. very interesting for the Saints to have as a weapon, another person who can do those types of things. I think if they can get into space, and that's the one yeah. thing the Saints have not been able to do is get guys into space and let them make moves. They have enough athletes in this receiving group. We'll see if they have the hands and the discipline to run their routes consistently, but they have the athleticism and the ability to move within small spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 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 a lot to like about Kawan Baker and what he can be on a Sean Payton offense specifically. I mean, I think that we often try to take these guys that are you know coming out of smaller schools and we try to say, hey, the leap in competition might be too much for them. But we also have to remember that they're also undergoing a leap in their own preparation, a leap in their own scheme and a leap in their own game plan. And especially when you're taking a leap as an offensive weapon, which is sort of feels like what Kawan Baker could be. Someone that could line up in the backfield, line up in the slot or line up outside. Sean Payton's going to have a lot of ideas for what the vision could be for a player like that. Remind me what school the greatest wide receiver of all time went to. Oh, well, that would be, uh, oh, God, what school? It was at HBCU. Is Mississippi the, Valley State. Word. Mississippi Valley State. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what school so, Randy Moss go to? Randy Moss was at Marshall. Uh, Marshall, yeah. That big school? No. What school did Terrell Owens go to? I don't even remember what school he went Tennessee to. Tennessee State. Tennessee State. Wow. Is that a big school? Nope. So not on big schools. You talk about the three most productive receivers of all time, right? And not a one of them played in for a major school in a major conference, right? And of course, I mean, we can always look at you know the greatest receiver, I guess you could say, or the leading receiver, let's say, in Saints history with Marcus, uh, excuse me, with uh, Marcus Colston, who you know came out of a school whose program doesn't even exist anymore. In terms of in terms of having a football program, so I mean, you know, the Saints and have produced two of the most notable receivers uh, in the NFL over that last over that stretch between Wayne Corbett right. and then Marcus Colston. That's and right. I, yeah. He doesn't have a program, so that's right. that's. But the Saints receivers in general, Joe Horn, where did he come from? You know what I mean? It wasn't right. he wasn't a guy who came from with a big reputation. So we've seen it time and time again that you can find elite receiver talent at different places. It doesn't have to be from your major schools. Yeah. Yeah. It just it comes down to, you know, what if they can play, they will play. I mean, it, it's that simple. And that has always been the way that the Saints have looked at their roster. Like we talked about this before last season. Um, 
the Saints come in and they draft players they have a specific vision for. Nobody comes in aimlessly into the Saints facility once they're drafted or once they're signed. They only really invest in players, whether it be monetary or whether it be draft capital, that they have a specific idea for and they have a specific path carved out in terms of how they can make the roster. They bring everybody in with the best opportunity. And that becomes the focus. How do we provide them the best opportunity? How do they grow that player into that opportunity and give them a chance to take advantage of it? That's always what they've done. And Sean Payton said the same thing about another rookie from this year when it came to Ian Book, that like, look, there's no expectation for him to come in and to New Orleans and challenge for a starting role. But at the same time, the Saints aren't going to put a ceiling on the guy. Like if, if somebody comes in and proves that they deserve consideration somewhere, whether it's Kawan Baker, whether it's Landon Young, whether it's Ian Book or one of the early three defensive players that they selected, they're not going to limit anybody based on their draft stock and their draft position. That's something that, you know, Sean Payton comes from the Bill Parcells school of it all. And the 2006 uh, Katrina, you know, uh, post Katrina game as they returned to the dome up against the Atlanta Falcons. It was one of the first things that they talked about with him was how they was how he was utilizing a guy like Marcus Colston over that time and how he became somebody that, you know, follows in the footsteps of Bill Parcells theory, which Sean Payton carried on of we don't care about where a player gets drafted or what their draft stock is. Once they get into the system, once they get into the facility, they are a New Orleans Saint and they have the right to a position just like anybody else who was drafted before them or signed for a greater deal than them or whatever. You talked about Landon Young and with the history of the Saints offensive line over the last few years, linemen have had to be ready. They've had to step mm -hmm. up. With the transition that Cesar Ruiz had last year, as difficult as it was for him, he did get some reps, but they're going to have to focus on him, certainly as a ma major contributor for that line this season. What's the plan for Landon Young, a guy who has plenty of experience, has a great story mm -hmm. and how he got to this point. So, you know, he's a worker, which is something that Sean Payton is looking right. for. How are they going to utilize him in camp and what, what should he be prepared for for his role this year? Yeah, I mean, he's going to the thing he should be prepared for is proving his viability as a versatile piece on the offensive line. That would be sort of first and foremost. He's a career left tackle. Every single game that he played at, <laughs> at uh, Kentucky when he came in as a part of the big blue wall was at left tackle. Every game that he started, he was there. So can he play on the interior? Can he play on the opposite side? That's what the Saints are going to find out. And they're starting him there. I mean, they're starting out working with him over on the right tackle spot behind Ryan Ramchick. Uh, over previous seasons, they've had Ethan Greenidge there, another undrafted, well, he was an undrafted free agent, but another smaller school guy, much like Kawan Baker that came in that the Saints really like. But when he has stepped in, there has been a huge drop off in both run production and pass protection without Ryan Ramchek. So this idea of investing in a guy that has been, you know, an SEC teamer his entire pretty much his entire career, that's been that career left tackle that didn't allow a sack and wasn't credited with a single pressure in 2020 in SEC play, playing against SEC and therefore NFL competition is oftentimes the way the NFL looks at it. You get him behind a guy like Ryan Ramchek and of course somebody that has dealt with injuries quite a bit throughout his career in Toronto Armstead, you feel a little bit more comfortable about your reserves there because this guy could end up being a starter at either one of those positions should you need him there in a pinch. Now, if he can also prove that he can play on the interior, then he becomes another.
their valuable piece, just like James Hurst, as being someone who can play either one of those tackle positions or along the interior as well. So that would be the first thing that I would watch out with for him is how they utilize him in camp and where they try to line him up to see if he can be viable at other positions than where they know he can be viable, which is at the left tackle spot. How do you approach getting someone ready behind Ramchek, knowing that the contract extension hasn't been signed yet? You want to make sure you have people in place in mm-hmm. case something goes wrong, in case there's a holdout, in case there's an injury um, at that position. So how much do the Saints really invest in these in that, in that rotational group of those backups to make sure somebody's ready to go should there be any complications with the Ramchek situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll see them invest a lot of time there uh, with it w- really with a lot of those offensive linemen. I mean, James Hurst, uh, Ethan Greenidge, and then, of course, Landon Young as a part of that. They brought back Will Clapp. Uh, I'm sure you'll see them invest a lot of time because every season at some point or another, they've had to go to somebody on, you know, further down the depth chart to start a game or to take over and close out a game, anything like that. And the Saints have been very good at doing that to where regardless of what that starting five combination might be, they've done a good job at producing on the offensive line, keeping the quarterback clean and being effective in the run game. So I think you'll see them continue to put the same amount of emphasis that they've always put into, particularly the depth spots in the trenches on the offensive and in the defensive side. I think you'll see them continue to do that. I don't think anything would change there in terms of them maybe paying less attention because you know there's the contract you know, clouds that are hanging over actually both Ramchek and Tron Armstead, but I don't think that they'll pull any um, any attention on the depth. But, you know, because of that, I think they'll continue to focus there as they always have. The guy that we haven't really talked about this offseason is Andrews P. What is his status um, just as through the organization? I mean, they, they re-signed him last year and it was controversial then. His production over the season was good, but not great. And, mm-hmm. and of course, continues to deal with injuries. How how strong is Andrews Pete's support within the organization? And could is this a really um, important year for him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, as we've talked about before, he's not going anywhere before the year because they restructure his contract. And so he ain't going nowhere right now. But I do think that this is an important year for him. And the way that the Saints built that contract, it gave them an opportunity to be out from underneath it after 2021. Now it becomes a little bit tougher with the restructure after 2022 seems a little bit more viable. But if they get to a position to where either let's say they you know, they they lose a ton of games this season and they're looking to maybe make some changes around the offense and they need to figure out the quarterback situation or anything like that. And they could move on from Andrews Pete earlier, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, or if they feel that they're just a piece away and Andrews Pete becomes a potential trade target, which of course we have to walk the line there between him still being good enough to be a trade target, right? We can't pretend like he's going to be very bad and then say, well, the Saints will just trade him. That doesn't make any sense. So you have to walk that line a little bit. But, you know, I I think this is a very important year for Andrews Pete to make sure that he establishes himself as, you know, one of the better left guards in the NFL, which he has the potential to do. The interior offensive line, well, particularly the guard positions in the NFL, are not very strong those are usually not spots that you know collegiate teams really take the time to develop you know because if that guard is 
you know, too much of an athlete, then they'll move them to tackle or they'll move them to the defensive line. And then, you know, same thing happens with the interior defensive line. If they're athletic enough, then they'll move them to the outside. And if they're athletic enough as a defensive end, then they'll move them to tight end. Like that's, you know, they don't, they, they go with who's going to win them the most games and how they're going to win the most games as opposed to focusing on what's best for the players in terms of their development, getting to the next level. And so for Andrus Pete, he has the ability to be a top left guard in the NFL. And clearly he thinks so too. He took to Twitter just a couple of days ago when PFF put out their top 32 offensive guards in the NFL list, and he was not on the list. And he took to Twitter to sort of let everybody know that he saw that with a couple of emojis and things like that. But if you're going to do that, then that means when you hit the field in 2021, you have to prove to everybody why you believe that. Yeah, I would have preferred if he not said anything because yeah. it, it stirred more amongst Saints fans who are disappointed in him mm-hmm. than it did rally some support. For people right. to say, oh, he was overlooked. You're not going to find a Saints fan who's, who's going to jump out on that ledge, even if they like him. It, it just seems like for a guy who had been silent pretty much for the, the duration of his career thus far, why talk now? Why right. say something now? Yeah, and people can't, people can't you know, come out and say, hey, man, yeah, you were overlooked because then, you know, they take heat and everything like that. Like, it's it's too volatile. It's too, the Andrews Pete topic is too volatile and he should know that. <laughs> He's experienced it. You know what I mean? But He's a at smart the same, guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, you know, that becomes the big thing is, you know, if you're going to come out and you're going to say something and you're going to let everybody know that you saw that and that you're intrigued by it at the very least, then you've got to be able to prove why once you hit the field in 2021. The last thing I want to hit on is, of course, the quarterback conversation. I always have to keep up with that. And Taysom Hill preparing to, you know, got reports he's preparing to be the starter. And it just reminds me, A, that that even Vegas now, the odds are so far ahead for Jameis to take this starting job. But the part of establishing who is the leader on the offensive side of the football, who is going to run that group, that is going to really be – the story of training camp because I don't worry about that on defense. You got right. guys at every level, right? Yep. Got Cam Jordan, got Demario Davis, got Malcolm Jenkins. Yep. Don't need any leadership. Yep. Offensive All line, right. I got Teron Armstead, I got a Ram check. I'm comfortable with those guys as leaders. But there's always been a thing from Michael Thomas who looks inward. You know, you see that in those games. He's looking for that inspiration. Yep. You see a guy like Alvin Kamara who's ready to have someone kind of just really get how good he is. You know what I mean? Like, I need you to understand now. Feed me. Right. And give me the ball and let me work. He wants that kind of relationship. And so whoever seizes that, even though I think the predication is towards Jameis, he still has to go out and take that mantle so that those guys feel confident in him and not just want to see him come out and eat up dubs. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it. look, I think that the – the competition for quarterback is already underway, first of all, right? Like we're seeing it, um, you know, Jameis Winston's comments and what he said during the, you know, Dak Prescott camp, what he said in the the several interviews he's done, his, you know, re-signing uh, press conference that he did with the team uh, or with, with, with Saints Media. That is all part of the quarterback competition, right? Can you be a leader? Can you show you, can you have the right attitude? Can you do all the things, right? And, and can you can you be self-aware too, which you've seen a lot from Jameis when he mentioned that he was, you know, he went from number one pick to a laughing stock, which I don't agree. I don't think he went to a laughing stock, but that's the way that he sees it. And that's that's fire. Like that's that's food for him. 
and and speaking of food the eat the w thing like he he ended up doing an interview with sean payton's daughter actually over at wgno and you know brought you know talked about the uh the origin of that and, and where it came from and all this and kind of had fun about it you know and had fun about himself like those those traits are really important ones plus you see him on instagram sharing all of his workouts he's working out with jake laser who by the way is a fantastic friend of sean payton's mm-hmm. very very close friend of sean payton's anytime you, you hear jake laser talking about the saints you go okay this must be true yes absolutely and then you see um you know him also working out with traquan smith and adam troutman and ty montgomery and and Jawan johnson who you know look are, are those players indicative of what's happening at with the starting quarterback position as much as say a michael thomas would be no but does it mean nothing absolutely not like it certainly means something meanwhile Taysom hill's kind of keeping to himself he's kind of going the other route which is it is you know could be bad, could be good. Just depends upon how you you look at it and what you value, and everything. But you know, he's in Idaho. He's working and he's preparing to be the starting quarterback. The fact of the matter is, we don't know if he's working with other players or not, right? Like everything right. is just hush hush, and and that's fine. But they're two very different approaches in terms of winning over either uh, a team or winning over a fan base or winning over a community or winning over potentially the organization. So he's got to be talking about it somewhere. Uh, for people to know <laughs> that he's doing the work, right? So I think it's really interesting. I mean, we're watching two very, very different players, honestly, two very, very different approaches to this competition thus far, but both of them showing a lot of respect for one another uh, throughout it. It's very much defined by how we perceive them anyway. James being the mm-hmm. more um, gregarious, outgoing person, his campaign, and I, I don't want to make it seem disingenuous, but that's what you are yeah. campaigning for a job here. Of course. His campaign is, is, is seems to be relationship-wise. Mm-hmm. I'm going to build my relationships with these guys. I'm going to understand them. They're going to want to work with me. This is my team. I want to own it that way. Yep. It, it seems as Taysom comes from what we've seen throughout his career. I work. I put my head down. Yep. I work. I work. I work. I'm going to show up. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. And that's how I'm going to win my team over because no one's going to outwork me. I'm going to be the guy in the room every day. If I have to throw 800 passes every day, I'm going to throw 800 passes every day. That, and it's just, it seems that's the way it's just playing out organically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it very much fits their personalities, right? I mean, you even saw it during the season. You know, uh, Jameis Winston being in the locker room, dancing, having a lot of fun. You didn't see Taysom Hill in those videos, right? Taysom was to himself doing his thing. Now, you saw him when he won his games, of course, and deservedly so, and deservedly so. But, you know, you also saw videos, you know, that Janoris Jenkins was posting on Instagram of, you know, music playing in the locker room and Jameis Winston rapping along. Now, Taysom Hill couldn't do that. Let's be, let's be very honest. Shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Yeah, let me say shouldn't do that. He could do that, but he shouldn't do that considering some of the words that were used throughout some of those lyrics. But that was the first thing I thought was like, well, only Jameis. This is, this is, this and is where special. Yeah, go right. back to Utah and, and, and go see the LDS <laughs> some of the lyrics. Right. And so, you know, but this is, this is a specific thing, right? Like this is where Jameis aligns with the majority of that locker room in a way and relates to a majority of that locker room in a way that Taysom Hill and Drew Brees can't. I don't know how much that can count in a coaching decision, of course. Right. I don't know that it can. But it counts so far as the community that's built around him and his ability to be a leader for those guys in the locker room, which is something that then is seen in other environments, on and the field, in the huddle, all that. And how they'll react with him during camp. Like, if they see it, right. these are guys, if, if you have those relationships, then they'll say, hey, hey, James, 
this is what we're supposed to be doing right here. If there's right. any missing in the, though I doubt based on James's reputation that he will miss Burbage. He's been known to eat up playbooks. He reads them yes. voraciously yeah. and is a film guy, but yeah. those relationships do help. And I think the guys want to see him succeed. Does that yes. mean that they're going to necessarily do anything against Taysom? No, absolutely not. Cause mm -hmm. they're there to win. Right. First and foremost. Yes. But that doesn't mean that if you like somebody, you're going to maybe give them that extra time when they ask for it after practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Or it just becomes a given, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it becomes a part of the routine because you're used to being around that person. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm just looking at this, uh, this write up that Jeff Duncan did with uh, Jeff Ireland when talking about uh, draft picks. And one of the things that Jeff Ireland says about Ian Book was that he was kind of going through all of the the boxes that he checked the Bill Parcells do you should I draft this quarterback boxes you know that that they really use and one of them was what do the they said they evaluate what his teammates had to say about him and would they want him on their team at the next level and he said unanimously his teammates from Notre Dame Ian Book's teammates said yes and I think that just by looking at that as a part of the draft evaluation you have to imagine that that same type of thing what do the teammates have to say about the leader of this team still factors in quite a bit when making a big decision like this for a guy that's already on your roster the saints have some hard decisions to make and it's going to this training mm -hmm. camp have what would you compare i mean as this I, one comes I, in the amount of questions it hasn't been maybe since the bounty gate season that you've had going into a year with this many questions as to the status of so many players and just the organizational direction. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, we certainly haven't seen this many questions on the roster probably since 2017, right. Coming into 2017 out of the seven and nine seasons, but in terms of like the organizational questions <laughs> that are there, this is a huge year for the New Orleans Saints, a huge year for New Orleans Saints fans. And there's a lot of reason to be excited about it, right? I mean, there's there's just as much reason to be excited about it as there is to be nervous about it, you know, or, or anxious about it. But it is something that I think this team will respond to in a positive way, especially considering how much Sean Payton rises to challenges. Oh, no starting quarterback, and I got to go out there and win games with with Teddy Bridgewater or Taysom Hill, fine, I'll do it. Oh, no starting wide receivers at all, and I got to go out there and, and produce with Traquan Smith and Marquez Calloway? Great, I'll do it. Oh, I got to go out there without any starting cornerbacks, and I got to win with Grant Haley? Awesome, I'll do it. Like, he has always found ways to rise to that. You've heard, actually heard Jameis Winston talk about that being one of his favorite things about Sean Payton and how it inspires him to make sure that he's rising up to occasions and opportunities the same way that Sean Payton does. This isn't just a prove-it year for players. Not that I think Sean Payton is on the hot seat, but it is a bit of a prove-it year for Sean Payton in terms of his legacy. And just, I would imagine... The competition within himself, the competitor within himself, who wants to make sure that he's producing a team that can go out there and compete, that can go out there and win, despite the changes that are all happening with this franchise right now going into the 2021 season. It's a great position to be in to be, if you're a Saints fan, to look at this as, I have no idea <laughs> what it's going to look like on game right. one. Nope. You can't have any preconceived notions about where Alvin Kamara is going to line up, where Michael Thomas is going to line up, what is going to happen, how many passes they're going to throw. You have no idea for the first time in two decades 
you're sitting there and you don't know what the offense is going to look like. And to me, that's exciting. I, I welcome that. No one, again, no one will push the success of the Breeze era aside easily. That's not what anybody's trying to do. But I think as a fan base, at some point, this is a reju- rejuvenation. It's a mm-hmm. new in- incarnation of the Saints. And though that happens every year, there has not been this kind of shift in the Sean Payton era. I say embrace it and, and, and as they say, steer into the curve, man. Let's see what this looks yeah. like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at the 2019 season, uh, Michael Thomas's last full season, right? Because he missed so much time in 2020. Um, 180 total targets, but 64 of them came while he was in the slot. And so this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation that there might that there's opportunity for a guy like Kawan Baker, for Marquez Callaway, for Traquan Smith to not win the wide receiver two the Z receiver role opposite Michael Thomas, but still find snaps on the outside because of how much Michael Thomas will play from the slot. And so your, to your question about what to expect going into week one for guys like that, that's a really big reason. And one of the reasons why I think you invest in players that have all this versatility, because that's what your roster is already full of. Alvin Kamara can line up in the slot, right? I mean, if you get him back to the 2017 season where he lined up in the slot consistently and led all running backs across the NFL with targets out of the slot where it was trending to do that. That's exactly what the Saints are all about. And now they undergo this shift. It's not going to be a paradigm shift, but that's going to sort of be a, a, a bit of a rejuvenation in terms of the excitement, the question marks, all those things, right? Not that any player is going to come in and guarantee to rejuvenate or be better than Drew Brees, but there's a rejuvenation or a reignition, I guess is probably the right word, in terms of the, we want to succeed because this is brand new and we want this brand new car to drive and we want it to drive well. And I think that's one of the things you're really going to see. And what the Saints look like week one, I can guarantee you, what the Saints look like week one is not what they will look like after their bye week going into week seven and headed to Seattle. They'll continue to evolve over the course of the season, not because of injuries, things like that. Obviously, those would play a factor. But even still, if everybody remains healthy for the first seven weeks, the product that you see on the field, week seven going to Seattle would be different than what you see week one. In the history of NFL trade-offs from one great quarterback to the follow-up, if Jameis Winston lives up to, let's say, 85% of his potential, what historical comparison would you make? It's not Joe Montana going to Steve Young. It's not that. No. It's it's not not Dan Marino going going to Jay Fiedler. It's it's better than that. So we're between those two places, Dan Marino to Jay Fiedler and Joe Montana to Steve Young. Where in that middle do you find it that's a really good question um i might say going from philip rivers to justin herbert as a as a as a more recent one right because you have the the veteran whose arm talent is dwindling dwindling a little bit and then you're getting this big young guy that doesn't fit the same mold as you that it, you know can make some plays with his leg that can, legs both of them that can be a little bit more mobile within the pocket and, and has some escapability but doesn't do it with the same veteran savvy ways that a guy like philip rivers or drew Brees does impeccable leaders going to young impeccable leaders like that would be my i think that would be my comparison and it's a very recent one but i think it's one that would stand true oh and of course you go from you know the the questions of arm strength to 
no questions about arm strength at all when it comes to guys like Justin Herbert and even 85% of, of Jameis Winston's potential. That's probably the, um, the, the correlation that I would draw. And Los Angeles Chargers fans, I think right now, are rightfully excited about what Justin Herbert has brought. Now, I know they had Tyrod Ta- T- Taylor in, in between there and everything like that, but there's a lot of excitement around Justin Herbert. I think you would see the same type of excitement if Jameis Winston was operating very quickly at that capacity uh, right away. I am willing to say Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck. Because oh, I like Andrew, that. Andrew Luck was, even when Andrew Luck retired, we still were expecting more at that point. Right. He didn't right. get to the to the level that of being the number one prospect since John Elway, but a number one overall pick coming in after an all-time great who also was at that point of diminishing returns in arm strength, who had ultimate mm-hmm. control of that offense and made yep. most of the decisions, had a great relationship quarterback to, to head coach relationship. Yep. Then you, you, you know, you, you bring in that next guy and the question for Andrew was building the defense. He didn't have much of a defense when he got there and he got hit a lot. Yeah. I think you change that with Jameis. Jameis won't get hit a ton and he's got a solid defense, but it's that same bigger, stronger guy, the ability to go downfield and utilize a T.Y. Hilton, which was something Peyton couldn't do. Um, right. So I think th- that could be an apt comparison is that because you're getting a guy who in his, is going into now his sixth year. I think that's that's a good place to be for Jameis, considering what yeah. he's already done in his career. That's a really good one. And I'll be curious to see if the the revitalization of T.Y. Hilton, the way that he experienced that with Andrew Luck, ends up being something akin to what we see with Michael Thomas, who all of a sudden gets back to being a little bit more of, you know, he was never a a field stretcher, even in college, but he could make plays down the field because you could get him one-on-one downfield and just give him a chance. And more times than not, he made good on that opportunity. And we saw him do that in his early seasons in New Orleans. We also saw him do that a ton in college. I think that would be something he would welcome big time, you know, to be able to make those bigger plays and not just be, a, you know, not not that he is, but be perceived as a, you know, a weapon that's only viable close to the line of scrimmage. We know that that's not the case, but that's often the way that he's perceived. I think that him as somebody that you know, does care about the way that he is viewed within the history of the NFL. And I think rightfully so, because he has the potential to be one of the best to ever do it at his position and certainly is is one of the best to do it right now in this era. I think he would welcome that opportunity to be able to, you know, do some things more like DeAndre Hopkins does, do some things more like uh, Devontae Adams does and be able to prove that part of his game. And he'll be able to do that with a guy like uh, with a guy like Jameis Winston. Yeah, it's it's the Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin problem. Right. Because I think yes. Mike, Michael Irvin stays historically underrated because Alvin Harper got the deep balls and Michael mm-hmm. Irvin moved the chains. And you look at that, you know, we certainly believe you, if we saw Michael Irvin in his prime, he was at least the, you know, in the top three receivers of his era, but he just didn't put up the touchdown numbers. And, and Troy right. Aikman didn't throw. I, th- I don't think Troy Aikman had a 25 touchdown season in his career. So it's just, right. you know, those numbers then get skewered in a different way. And I think if you're Michael Thomas, yeah, you don't get on the, the all-time list without those plays, the Jerry Rice one-handed catch, the T.O. Mm-hmm. catching in the middle, of, you know, in the playoffs, Randy right. Moss going down the sideline and destroying the Cowboys. You don't get those catching these balls. You just don't. Right. And that's what everybody wants. You want those Odell Beckham moments. You want those every receiver wants them. And Michael Thomas just doesn't get enough of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need the moment, right? Whatever that moment is for you, you need that moment. And right now, 
Michael Thomas has the production of somebody that if he maintains uh, his production, that will be Hall of Fame worthy. But does he have the moment? Does he have the moment yet? And so far, he doesn't. And, and that's no and that's no criticism to him. It's just that it also hasn't been it might not also be available to him yet. I mean, he has mm-hmm. the big deep touchdown catch against the the Ra- the Rams um, in a regular season game a couple of years ago. He had another one uh, against another team. He had that fantastic catch in the back of the end zone against the San Francisco 49ers, Another one up against the pylon against the Cincinnati Bengals. He has those 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 you know catch your eye types of plays. But does he have the moment yet? Right, the one that's nicknamed something, you know, he doesn't have that yet, but he'll or find in the playoffs, it. That one in the playoffs, playoff, yeah, yeah, where he wins right. a game in the postseason, um, just by the number of catches or yards he gets. Yeah. Uh, but this, this, this is going to be one of the most interesting uh, seasons for the Saints in their, in their history, and I'm looking forward to it. And I love talking to you about it and getting ready for it. Me too, man. I, I, I'm really looking forward to the way that this year unfolds. Um, I'm in no hurry to get there because. The storylines on the way is where you're going to see all of it get ironed out and figured out. So I'm very excited as we move through OTAs, mandatory minis into training camp and everything. Um, it, it's going to be and, and, you know, and there's still so many questions to be answered about who's on the roster. We still don't know if they're looking to add anybody else to that roster as well. So there's these other kind of unknowns that that still uh, sit around. And so I, I'm very excited about what's going to take place here throughout. And I, I look forward to continuing to to break it down with you, man. Tell the folks, as usual, where they can find you and all your good work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ross Jackson, NOLA, N-O-L-A. You can catch the Locked on Saints podcast every Monday through Friday on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube now, as we're up on YouTube as well. You can just search Locked on Saints and subscribe to the channel. That's been a lot of fun so far. I've uh, been loving doing that because I've been able to provide some visual uh, aids in terms of talking about stuff as well. So that's been great. We just had our midweek fundamentals episode today where we broke down offensive line gaps and defensive techniques and what Saints players do what on the defensive line there, which the fact of the matter is that all of them do all of it, but who are the ones that they most likely uh, uh, lean on for those different uh, situations? And so that's been a lot of fun uh, to have that going. And uh, over at canalstreetchronicles.com, all the write-ups just put out a couple of pieces over the last couple of days, most reliable Saints uh, asset on third downs is something I'm going to be continuously breaking down over the course of the uh, over the course of the season, including watching and charting every third down play the Saints had in 2020. Is this and, the theme uh, for this year? Because last year was the defensive line. Yeah, I'm, I'm really. I'm. This is my like off season theme, and then I'll, I'm going to consider keeping it throughout the regular season to see if like third down is the thing that I want to latch on to. Uh, or at least drive extending plays is the thing that I want to latch on to because this team focuses so, so strongly on time of possession. And there's a correlation, particularly within the NFC, actually, there's a correlation between top five scoring offenses within the conference and top five in terms of third down conversion percentage. So you've seen this be a, a theme in terms of wearing down defenses within the conference and therefore that efficiency resulting in scoring. And so that's something that I'm looking at. And that's actually been the story over the last three years in the NFC. So I'm probably going to stick with it. I think that's going to be the one. But if nothing else, I'll continue to break it down here over the offseason. It will be a story throughout the season. Um, Just the comparisons will be there. The Saints have always been so good at third downs. And then we'll be looking to... Turnovers are going to be the, uh, a huge thing this year mm-hmm. either for either quarterback. I know people want to talk Absolutely. about Jameis all the time, but we know Taysom fumbles too. So mm-hmm. the both of them will be heavily scrutinized for their ball security. Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be a huge theme, huge theme going through. That and decision-making. 
Facebook. Yes, that's the premium. <laughs> that's number one. Number one. But we'll go through it and we'll be here all off season and into the regular season as we do each and every Wednesday on the Dome Patrol. So for Ross Jackson, I am David Brown. And it's like this. Like it's so sweet. Like it's so sweet.